Hey guys, this is the Mosaic Podcast and I want to welcome you. But I want to let you know that MSC just released a new album called Heaven. Seven brand new songs that express the heart of our community, our heart of worship, and are going to absolutely inspire you and make an impact on your life. Mosaic MSC, Heaven. I think it was last year we had a billboard outside that said, Love Built This. And one of the guys on our team saw that a, a, a really big celebrity took a photograph of it, put it on there, whatever. And they, and they sent it to me before they actually read the comments. They said, look, he saw the billboard and he commented on it. And then he realized he was throwing shade. <laughs> Love built this. Love didn't build this. People built this. Love wasn't used to build this. It's wood and paint. And, and, and he was actually really funny. Really sarcastic, really jaded, and completely wrong. <laughs> because e- even Picasso understood that great art is created out of love. Monet understood that. Van Gogh understood that. Yes, all the great artists, including Jesus. See, one of the realities is that when we live our life to our highest intention, everything we build will be built out of love. In fact, I think it should be the, the highest aspiration of your life to be able to look back on your life and say, love built this. Now, let's be really upfront. Not everything we build is built by love. Sometimes we build things that we wish we had not built. Have you ever built a section of your life on something other than love? Like hate, (laughs) revenge, bitterness, anger, apathy. Have you ever built your life and thought to yourself, is this what I have to live with? The worst thing in the world is to actually be trapped inside of a life you have to live. Because sometimes what we build actually becomes a prison and it holds us captive. So I've looked back on my life and I've built things I did not want to build. I built things that were not built by love. And so I've made it my intention, my life mission to only live a life of love, to build out of love and to make sure that when I look back on my life, I can say, love built us. Because the highest intention of your life is that you would be motivated by love and that you would build a life. That would reflect that love. Which I think is why when Jesus had his last significant conversation with Peter before he left. Not not before he died. But after he died and rose from the dead. I mean the conversations Jesus had with his disciples before he died were significant. But imagine the power of the conversations Jesus had after he died. You pay more attention when someone has died and has been raised from the dead. Somehow their words have more power. And, and in the last conversation that Jesus was having with Peter, you know that the words were so carefully selected because Jesus had selected Peter to be the, the point man of the movement that would revolutionize human history. And so this, this conversation would, would matter because these words would need to echo inside of Peter's soul for the rest of his life. And these words would have to shape the future of the church For generations and generations to come. And so we should pay attention not only to the words, but the context in which those words were given. And so what I want you to do is follow with me in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And there are essentially three movements here I want you to to step into with me. But the conversation is so significant. It's as if Jesus was saying to Peter, I want you to understand that you build what you love. So pay attention. To where your love goes. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, 
It happened this way. By the way, this is being written by the disciple named John. It says, Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, John and James, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, by the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. And John's writing this book. So instead of saying, and then John, or and then I, he says, the disciple that Jesus loved. Everyone knows who we're talking about. (laughs) Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coal there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will... Stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said to him, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked him, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, the context is is so unique 
that the words carry so much power. And the central narrative of this entire experience is a conversation Jesus has with Peter about love. Now, if you were talking to the person you're entrusting your entire movement to, the future of the human race is in the hands of this singular individual. You're going to leave, step out of human history. You're going to pour out your spirit and entrust this man with humanity's future. What kind of conversation would you have with them? Would you talk to them about strategy or systems or organization? Would you talk to them about leadership development? What would you talk to them about? It's not an accident that Jesus does not talk to him about all the stuff we go and learn whenever we want to learn how to lead. Jesus has one single conversation. He has one singular focus. This conversation is about love. Peter, who do you love? What do you love? Where has your love been directed? But the conversation is in context. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And they were at the Sea of Galilee and they were fishing. In fact, they were all gathered together, and it seems as if they were doing nothing. And suddenly, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And then the rest of them said, well, we'll go with you. And they went fishing all night, but they caught nothing. And we know they were there all night because it was the morning time when they came back to shore. And Jesus was standing on the shore, and he asked a question that no fisherman ever wants to be asked when they caught nothing. What did you catch? Friends, have you caught any fish? Now, I'm not a fisherman. I don't have the patience for it. But I know people who fish, and they call themselves fishermen, and they never tell stories of when they went fishing and caught nothing. They only talk about the stories where they caught something. And no matter what they caught, the story is bigger than the reality. And what you don't want when you've had a whole night of fishing and you've caught nothing, you come back with empty nets, is to have someone at the shore asking you, so how'd it go? That must have been irritating enough, but what a fisherman really hates is when someone else thinks they can fish better than them. And you have a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish. So the, he's standing on the shore. They've caught nothing. They have to admit it. No, we, we haven't caught anything. Our nets are empty. Then Jesus says to them, well, throw your nets on the other side. And you, there, are, there will be fish there. Now, can you imagine how Peter and John and James Musser felt about that? Oh, really? You think we've been fishing all night and have only thrown our nets out on one side? See, I, I think they probably threw the nets out on both sides. I think this was not a new idea to them. I think Jesus was not giving them something they had not done before. See, Jesus wasn't telling them to do something they had not done before. He was now telling them to do something they had done before, but now they're going to do it with Jesus. See, when you begin to unwrap, how do you build a life of love? How do you build what you love? The first thing you have to ask yourself is, how has love changed you? Because what what happens here is that Jesus has encountered his disciples now a third time after he has been crucified and raised from the dead. And the reality is that they decided to go back to the same life they had before they met Jesus. Before they met Jesus, they were fishing. And then after they saw Jesus crucified, they went fishing. But what is almost impossible to believe is after they knew that Jesus had been risen from the dead, they still went back fishing. I wonder how love has changed your life. Are you still doing now the very things you did before you met Jesus? Is your life no different in any tangible, palatable way since you've come to know Jesus Christ? You say you've met the creator of the universe. How has that changed you?
How is it possible that the creator who spoke and created the entire cosmos could be encountered by you and your life still be exactly the same? How has love changed you? It's not bad enough that Peter just got up and said, you know, I'm going to go fishing. I don't know what to do with my life, so I'm going to go back and do what I did before I met Jesus. And all the other disciples, they were worse off than Peter. They didn't know what to do either. So when Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, they say, we'll go with you. The only thing worse than someone who doesn't know what to do with their life and is doing nothing with their life are all the people following the person who's doing nothing with their life. The only difference between Peter and his friends was that he was doing nothing faster than them. Some of you are spending your life following people who are doing nothing with their lives. You're spending your entire life invested in people who are going nowhere. And guess where you're going to go if you're following someone who goes nowhere? You're going to go nowhere. And then when you start following them, you're just going to go nowhere fast. And some of you are going nowhere so fast you're already there. Because the curious thing about love is that you become like what you love. See, that's how you can know whether you actually love God. Because when you love God, you become like him. When you love Jesus, you become like him. And if you want to know what you love, just look and see what you look like. Jesus interrupts them going back to their old life. And here's the curious thing. See, the problem wasn't that they chose a dark, nefarious life. Peter didn't become so angry with Jesus and so disillusioned with life that he became a serial killer. He didn't decide to become a criminal. He didn't decide to to, to make money legitimately or do something that brought pain or harm to the world. He just went back to become a fisherman. So the tragedy of Peter's choice was not that he decided to become the worst person he could be. He just decided to go back to his ordinary existence. See, there's some of you here, you're not a bad person. You're doing so many things that, that would be described as okay. But you're living the same life you would have lived if you had not met God. So what exactly is the difference between the life you have and the life that Jesus wants to give you? How has love changed you? And by the way, what I think is beautiful is that Jesus actually met them in their fishing. It's almost as if he stepped back into their past. I do not think it's incidental that they caught nothing. I think God was responsible for that. Uh, I think Jesus wanted to make sure they came back having caught nothing. So they could remember that choosing a life without Jesus, if they choose to go backwards, there's nothing there for them. And then when Jesus says, throw out the nets... And they filled the nets. I think what Jesus was saying to them, hey, there's nothing wrong with this life, but trying to live this life without me is going to leave you empty. So they threw out their nets and they're filled with fish. And in fact, this is how you know they're fishermen. It says they were large fish. That's a really important detail. And in fact, they were large fish and there was 153 of them. That's how you really know they're fishermen. Because they, somewhere between... Catching all the fish and having breakfast with Jesus, they caught all the fish they had. I always think it's interesting when people say, well, you know, it's not about numbers. And it's almost always applied when it's related to church. But fishermen, see, they care about fishing. And they care about their fish, so they count the number of fish. See, the only people who don't care about numbers are the people who actually don't care about people. Because it matters 
who's with you and who you lost along the way. And then it says that, that Jesus called them out and they came to shore. And, and I, I, I love how gracious Jesus is. It says, when the disciples finally came to the shore, it says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. Wait a minute. Jesus already had fish. They came back with no fish. Jesus had fish cooking on the fire and some bread. He didn't even have to have them throw out the nuts. He could have said, I already have fish. Come and eat with me. I love how Jesus always engages us and allows us to be a part of the miracle. He just doesn't choose to do it without us. He chooses to do it with us. See, a huge part, and I've come to realize this over time, that one of the reasons so many times when you talk about giving, when you talk about money, people get really antsy and they get really nervous. And a huge part of that is because we don't really understand why our nets are full. You see, sometimes we get confused. When our nets are empty, we go, God, help me. And then when our nets are full, we go, look what I did. Now, once you realize that if your nets are full, if you're living a life and you are successful and you're just crushing it, you're just absolutely killing it. If you think you fill those nets by yourself, you're completely out of touch with reality. And you can always know who you think filled the nets because when God asks you for some of your fish and you're like, wait a minute, God, why should I give you back? What isn't yours? See, and he's no, no, you understand, 153 of those fish are in your nets because of me. But even still, in verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you have just caught. God is so gracious. Jesus could have said, bring the fish I caught. See, you caught nothing. I caught 153 fish in your nets. But he doesn't say that. He goes, you bring the fish you've caught. God is is a beautiful way in his generosity to entrust you with everything he gives you. And so then he allows you to decide what you do with what he's given you. So you bring the fish you caught. And, And if you're here right now, I want you to know, whatever God has poured into your life... It is your stewardship. God's not going to take it from you. He's not going to force it from you. They're not supposed to do things out of obligation or coercion. He says, bring what you have. And, and, and he knows that the only way that what we have is going to be redirected is if love changes us. So that's the conversation he begins to have with Peter. In verse 15, he says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? I always think it's interesting how people try to interpret the words of Jesus. Well, when you listen to historians, and they they say, when Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than these? He's talking about the fish. That's not really that compelling. Simon, do you love me more than fish? Cod, God, I don't know which one, you know, it's a... (laughs) I, I don't think it would be that hard to say, God, okay, I love you more than fish. I love you more than pizza. God, I love you more than caffeine. I love you more than, than cappuccinos. I don't really think that's what Jesus is saying. Do you love me more than fish? And maybe what Jesus is doing, is maybe there's a metaphor there. And he's saying, do you love the life I'm calling you to more than the life I'm calling you from? 
But I, I, I notice, though, that Peter is he, he's paralyzed and he's decided to put his life on hold and to stay with the people he knows and the people he trusts and the people he's comfortable with. He has chosen to go back to the life he had control over. See, I, I think what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to his closest allies, his closest friends. He's pointing to John and James and Bartholomew. He's pointing to all of them and saying, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than everyone you have? And in fact, the language that Jesus uses is so significant because he says, he doesn't call him Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And John describes him as Peter, but Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. It was not that long ago when, when, when Aaron was dissecting this passage of scripture and he was actually talking about how this is the crisis of identity that all of us have. That we're torn between who we were and who we are or who God calls us to be and who others tell us we are. And Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. And again, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, well, take care of my sheep. And the third time he says to him, Simon, son of John, why does Jesus keep calling him Simon, son of John? Did Jesus forget that he changed his name? You see, John and all the other disciples, they knew Peter as Simon, son of John. It was Jesus who knew Simon, son of John, as Peter. So why is Jesus referring to him as who he was? He was talking to Peter through the reference of how he was living, who he was choosing to be, rather than who he was called to be. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, by the way, I think this is the most courageous thing Peter ever said. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. How many of us could actually say that? Jesus, you know all things. I'm not hiding anything from you. Jesus, look into my soul. In fact, Peter, he doesn't even appeal to his own knowledge of his love. He says, you know that I love you. All the times Peter messed up, every mistake he ever made, every time he let people down and let Jesus down, in this moment, Peter has this absolute certainty, not that he's going to get it all right, not that he even understands how it's all supposed to play out, He just knows one thing, Jesus, look inside of my heart and tell me that I don't love you. See, the beautiful thing is that when your love is directed toward God, it's not because you initiated that love. Your love is responding to the love that God has erupted inside of you. And Peter says, Jesus, you know my heart. And you know that I love you. And then a third time, Jesus says, take care of my sheep. There are a lot of triads here three times jesus asks him do you love me three times peter says i love you three times jesus says feed my sheep 
Three times Peter denied Jesus before he was crucified. There are a lot of threes here. And it feels almost like, like Jesus is doing a, a palate cleanser. Like a soul cleanser saying, Peter, you denied me three times and I'm going to pull out of you this confession three times. I'm going to replace the three times you said I don't know him with I love you. So that you never remember the denials, only the declarations. But John adds this little nuance that I think is also significant. If we go back up earlier, we realize that that John points this out. That this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples. Verse 14. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Not the first time. Not the second time. The third time. I mean, how many times do you need God to show up before you stop going back to the life you used to have and step into the life he called you to? How many times does it take? You'd think it would just take one appearance after crucifixion. That's all I think I need. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw the life sucked out of him. They saw him broken and beaten. They saw him pulled down from that cross. They saw him placed into that tomb. They saw him dead. It would seem like the first Sunday, by the way, that's why we meet on Sundays, because Jesus showed up on Sunday when they were all meeting together, hanging out. And Jesus shows up, and they see this the wounds in his hands and feet. And, and the only one who wasn't there was Thomas. And so he doesn't believe. So the next week, the next Sunday, by the way, that's what happens when you miss a Sunday. You don't even know what happened last Sunday. It's up to you to figure that out. So the next Sunday, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there and Jesus reveals himself again. So he's already showed up twice, and now he shows up a third time, even though they didn't ask. They knew it was him. How many times does he have to show up for Peter before Peter begins to live the life Jesus called him to? How many times does God have to show up before you say, I'm all in? See, love changes you. But love also changes the world around you. See, the question you have to ask yourself, how has love changed me? How has the love of the creator of the universe, how has my encounter with the source of all love changed me? But it goes beyond that because it, 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 it demands the second part of this question. And how has your love changed the world around you? Because the conversation with Peter and Jesus had a rhythm. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Imagine if it only had the first two parts, not the third. It would be the most self-indulgent, awkward conversation to be listening to. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you really, really love me? I really, really love you. But, 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 do you really, really, really love me? You know, you know, you know how much I love you. I love you, love you. It would be kind of creepy. I just like, you know, I don't want to be in that conversation. Go have it somewhere else. 
I think that's, that's actually the, the conversation we want with God. We want a narcissistic, self-indulgent conversation with God that's just about us and God. God, do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you too. And I'm so, see, it's just me and you, God. And we're just going to skip along life. And gonna, like, it's just going to be so much fun. It's so beautiful. And there's going to be rainbows and, 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 and unicorns and, 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 and daffodils. And, and just, it's just you and me, Jesus. I don't, we don't need people. We don't need the church. See, I hear people all the time, ah, me and God. It's just me and God. Go, ah, you haven't met God because he's not that self-indulgent. I think a lot of us must think that God is just like us. Needy and greedy. But I want you to understand something. God wants your love. But he doesn't need your love. God's not like up there going, why won't they love me? I don't know if you know. I know there's a lot of fake Instagrams, but God doesn't have one. God does not have a Twitter account. It's like, like me, like me, like me, like me. See, God, God is not needy, and he's not saying love me because he needs your love. He's saying love me because you need his love. And he understands that you cannot receive his love until you're willing to give your love. When you give your love to God, it opens up your soul to receive the love you need from God. Yeah, we can, come on. If you're going to clap, then clap. But I want you to realize what God does. The moment he becomes the focus of our love, the object of our love, he immediately dispenses that love to others. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then love them. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then love them. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Then prove it. Love them. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Now, I I, want to just say something here because this is one of the most distorted statements from Jesus I've ever seen in the church. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. I hear all the time, I hear, I hear Christians all the time saying, I just want to get fed. You know, I, I'm looking for a church where I get fed. I always know when you come here like that, oh man, it's going to be tough. Because you're like a spiritual bulimic. You come here and eat all you can and you throw it up and just starve yourself all week long. You see, because the problem here is that when Jesus said, feed my sheep, There were no sheep. See, when people say, no, what Jesus said when he said, feed my sheep, it means you're supposed to teach the Bible to Christians. How did that happen? One, there was no, like, Bible. So it had been really hard to have a Bible study. Because it had not been written yet, just the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And then if Jesus was saying to Peter, you need to teach the Bible to Christians... He should have just grabbed John and James and Bartholomew and Matthew and Luke and all these guys. Okay, this is what we're supposed to do. Sit down. Get in the boat. I'm going to teach. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's sort of in process right now. I'm conceptualizing it. I think it might be two parts. John, I I think you should write one too. Because you're really flamboyant in the way you, you're the disciple whom he loves. 
See, when Jesus said, feed my sheep, there is no universe where that could be translated in, spend your whole life teaching the Bible to Christians. It could only be translated in, give your life to people who don't believe. There are people who are starving. They're starving for love. They're starving for hope. They're starving for acceptance. They're starving for a place to belong. They're starving, and I need you to care about them. I need you to get out of the boat and stop hanging around the people you're comfortable with. I need you to go into the world and feed people who are starving. So how has your love not just changed you, but how is love changing the world around you? How has it pulled you out of yourself and out of your comfort zone to people who desperately needs you to love them. So the beautiful thing about love is that it is an endless commodity. It is not a limited commodity. Because the moment you love, that love just keeps exponentially growing and growing. And the amazing thing about love is that when you give love away, you actually have more. It's the best investment of your soul. When you invest in love, you never run dry. You never run out. The only people who run out of love are the ones who refuse to give it away and only want to receive it. And by the way, if you actually are in love with God, you have no room for hate. You cannot love God and hate people. Because when you are full of the love of God, all the hate that could ever be in your soul has been extricated from you. See, when we talk about that we're going to build what we love, we understand that the church has been really damaged in its reputation. See, a lot of people, they they don't believe in God because the church wasn't trustworthy. So they don't trust God because the church wasn't trustworthy. A lot of people have a negative view of God because the church gave God a terrible reputation. See, there's something odd about species. When they come together, we begin to see them in a unique way. And that's why I love the name of species when they come together. You see one lion. It's a lion. But when, they, when there's a bunch of lions, they're called a pride. And you can see the pride of lions. When, when you see a, 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 a one rhino, it's one thing. But when you see a whole movement of rhinos, they're called crashes. It's a rhino crash. When you see a lot of owls. When you see one, it's just an owl. But when there's a lot of owls, they're called a parliament. And they do look British. (laughs) There's one crow, but when there's an entire group of crows, you're called a murder. Yeah, a little unnerving. When you see a bunch of vultures together, they're called a committee. And that explains Washington completely. (laughs) When you have a group of flamingos, they're called... A flamboyant. And that explains Christian television. I'm just going to throw a lot of shade tonight. So what do they call us when we come together? See, when humans come together, we're called a lot of things. We can be called a family, a community. We call it a tribe. And what we don't realize is that when a certain group of humans come together, they're called the church. And that's why you can't actually say, I love God, and I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, because what Jesse's saying is you don't love humanity. We see, the church is supposed to be a movement of people who've been transformed by the love of Jesus, who are desperately committed 
to making sure every human being knows that they're loved by Jesus. See, we need to change the reputation of this group who come together because the problem is, see, when you only see one, it's just one of a species, but when they come together, things begin to form. And that's why mosaic is so important. Because for too long, the church has been known as a group of people who are bonded by judgmentalism and condemnation. It's a group of people that have come together out of arrogance and self-righteousness. It's a group of people who have come together who seem to be motivated by guilt and shame. And we need to change that reputation. See, when we come together, see, if you're just one person by yourself, people will think you're amazing. It's when we come together that the world sees us most clearly. And we have to restore the reputation of Jesus by restoring the reputation of the church. So when people see us come together, oh, it's the church. It's the most generous people in the world, the most loving people in the world. Oh, it's the church. They're driven by kindness and compassion. Oh, it's the church. They sacrifice and they serve. It's the church. It's the epicenter of imagination and beauty and creativity. Oh, it's the church. And we're supposed to build it with love. Not just for the love we have for God. And not just the love we have for each other, but the love we have for humanity. Whether they ever love us or not, or ever love God or not, or ever love Jesus or not, our love is supposed to be unconditional. And then finally, it seems like Jesus and Peter work it out. And then Jesus changes the conversation, which he tends to do. In verse 18, he says, very truly. It's almost like, okay, Peter, we now know it's all about love. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old and you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. But it's kind of obscure. Wait, what's Jesus saying? So John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, wanted to make sure we understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. That's easy for John to write. And after Jesus Explained to Peter he would die for this love. Then he says to him, follow me. See, doesn't it feel a little bit like a bait and switch? Love, 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 death. Whoa, 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 what happened, what happened? Let's go back to love. We really like the love part, Jesus. See, if you think that the story of love does not end in sacrifice, you do not understand love. Because you only love what you're willing to sacrifice for. And then in verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them, writing it all down. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper. So John's talking about himself. He's saying, you know, the one that always hung with Jesus, the one who was always like leaning against Jesus, the young one that Jesus loved and took care of, you know, the one whom Jesus loved, that, that disciple, unnamed you know, the one who said, Lord, who's going to betray you? Because I had that kind of relationship with Jesus where I could ask that question. It was, it was okay. And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? This is why I love Peter. He doesn't say, I don't want to die. I don't want to end my life like that. Wait a minute, Jesus, is there any way to renegotiate that? Instead, he says, what about him? Yeah, I, I, I know you love him. Yeah, you're going to kill me? What are you going to do with him? 
okay if dying, if he dies too. In fact, it'd be better for me if he dies first. Because that way I know he's dead, and then I'm willing to die. See, I think a lot of us, we want someone to sacrifice, but we don't want to have to be the sacrifice. I imagine that moment, John's like, hey, I'm just, I'm just writing. Don't, don't bring me into this story. I'm, like, I'm not in this conversation. That's you and Jesus, Peter. What about him? How does Jesus answer? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? A lot. It's a lot. It's actually a lot to me, Jesus. Since you're asking me, I'll tell you, it really, really matters. It'll help me sort of process this. But Jesus doesn't let him respond. He says, you must follow me. I think a part of what has made the movement of Jesus so anemic is we keep thinking someone else should sacrifice for us rather than deciding to step up and sacrifice for others. And, and, and then John has to throw this in because a rumor was started. John writes, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. Now, who spread that? The rumor spread. It was just me and Peter and Jesus. One of us, one of us, one of us told people. I don't know who it was. Peter's going to die. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's like. But he goes on to say, but Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? In other words, Follow me. Trust me with your life. And stop measuring your life against someone else's life. Stop measuring your calling against someone else's calling. And stop waiting to step into your sacrifice until someone else sacrifices. Because really the question we have to ask ourselves if love is going to build our lives is not just how has love changed me and how has my love changed the world around me. But I think the most important question to ask is has love changed me? Am I building a life of love? Have I allowed the love that only comes from Jesus to so overwhelm me and compel me that now my life is an act of love? Can you look in the mirror and say, love built this? Will you look at the end of your life and say, with all the mistakes I made and all the twists and turns of my life and all the ups and downs, I know one thing. The life I built was built by love. The world I built was built by love. And, and together as a people, together as a mosaic, together as the church, are we going to be able to say, not only to Los Angeles, but to every city across the world, we want you to know that what we did, it was built by love. As you build what you love. So I'm asking you to join us on this great love. And let's build it together. There's some of you here. Your first step, your next step is to step into the love that only Jesus can give you. Here's the beautiful thing. That love is unconditional. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You just need to just receive it. You just need to step into it. And, and then maybe you didn't know 
that this love was already available to you in Jesus. Maybe you didn't know how to access it, and I just want to make it so clear. See, Jesus already gave his life for you. He already sacrificed for you. He already proved his love. He didn't wait. He didn't negotiate. He sacrificed himself because Jesus' singular motivation was love for you. You are the object of God's love. But the question remains, will you receive that love? So I just want to invite you right now to make a decision to cross the line of faith and to give your life to Jesus. To receive his love in your life and to let his love change you. And yes, Jesus will change you. Because what you love changes you. What you love shapes you. What you love recreates you. So I want to um, lead you in a prayer. It's just a simple prayer. It's just one sentence. It's not everything you and God need to talk about. That conversation is going to last eternity. But it begins with a relationship. It begins by saying, Jesus, I give you my life. See, Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. He will never force his love on you. He will never force his forgiveness on you. He will never force his freedom on you. He'll just try to win you to himself with his love. But some of you, you've been running and running and running from God. Why don't you stop and turn around and let love capture you? So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads with me just for a moment. If you're here and you're ready to receive that love that Jesus died to give you, You don't need him to show up one more time. You are ready to leave the life you have without him and step into the life you can only have with him. Then just whisper this prayer right now. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, just whisper to him. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. If this is your prayer, if this is the longing of your soul, then I want you to know that God has heard you. In that moment where you gave him your life, he put his life in you. And you belong to him. You've been captured by love. And love will never let you go. And through his love, you are set free. So I want to pray for you. If you just whispered that prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. I want you right now just to hold your hand up. And I want to see you and I want to pray for you right now. Just hold your hand up and say, yes, this is my prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. Beautiful. Beautiful. Anyone else? Jesus, I give you my life. Beautiful. Wonderful. Wonderful. Anyone else? Jesus, I give you my life. In the back. Jesus, I give you my life. Wonderful. I see you. Wonderful. Anyone else? Jesus. Right now, just step into it. Just receive his love. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his life in you. Father, I thank you for those in this moment have stepped from death into life, from darkness to light, have stepped into your love. I pray, God, they would just know that they belong to you and you will never abandon them, that they now have been captured by your love and that you are beginning in them a new life, a new future. And it begins now in this moment. And I thank you, God, that the intention of their life from this day forward will be love. 
And as they receive your love and allow your love to change them, they will become the force of change for a world so full of hate. And love will become the most powerful force in the world through them. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just thank God for all those who respond to him right now? So good. So beautiful. All right, guys. I want you to give me now about five minutes of your attention. Because it's Foundation Sunday, and I could have spent the whole talk talking to you about giving, but I didn't want to do that. I want to spend the whole talk talking about love. How love will change you. Love will change the world. And it's love that sent Jesus into the world. And if you get this, if you understand that this is the central message of the scriptures and why the church is so important, people need to know they matter. They need to know that God sees them. They need to know there's hope and there's love and there's a future for them. So I want you to just see what this narrative of Mosaic, and then I'm going to ask you to give. So I want you to pull out your your phone. I want you to pull out your Mosaic app just right now. Just go to it because I want us to do a practical thing because it's not love if we don't act. So here it is. Look at the past. I just want to see what's happened real quickly. 216. We had 3,757 people give their lives to Jesus. Is that incredible? And then that's so good. And then look at 217. Just a little bit more. 3,775, which is still kind of amazing. But 218, I don't know what happened. We had 6,440 people who have already given their lives to Jesus this year. Look at the baptisms. 2016, 169 baptisms. 217, 535 baptisms. This year already, 733 people following Jesus in baptism. And this is crazy. 2016, we averaged 2,586 people every week. Last year, 2,785 people every week. That's a small growth. And then suddenly this year, where did you come from? I don't know. But we're averaging 4,900 people every week here at Mosaic. That's 153 large fish. Just in case you're wondering. Our giving in 216 was 4.4 million, in 217, 5.9 million, and in 218, 7 million. So that's been growing. That's awesome. Come on, give yourselves a hand because that's so good. Let's go to the next slide. I want you to look at our growth. 2016, we had one campus in Hollywood. 217, we launched out South Pasadena and Venice Beach. Beginning of 2018, La Ciudad de Mexico. Middle of 2018, OC. And today, this morning, was our first gathering in Seattle. So good. We're just getting started. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. I just want you to notice a couple of things. A highlight on the left 50 million. Spotify streams for MSC? That is insane. Can we just give that up for that? Now on the right side over here, 839,000 live stream views in 71 countries. Come on, give it up for that. It's amazing. That means there are people in Moldova and people in Romania and people in, in, in Venezuela and people in China and people in Vietnam 
who would not have the capacity to access what we give them and they receive it for free because we pay for it together as a community. So this is what we do together for the world. It's beautiful. All right, here we are. You jumped a little ahead of me. All right, 4,900 average weekly attendance. We have one church and six locations this year and our budget for 2019. This is why today is Foundation Sunday. Because what we give together today will allow us to do what we intend next year. And our budget for next year needs to be minimally $8,700,000. And every time I say that loud, I want to black out. But when I put it in context, I want you to see something. I decided, let's look at some comparable churches across the country. But I did this on purpose, guys. I picked four cities that are historically conservative. Because LA is, I don't know if you know this, very progressive. Have you ever thought to yourself, how come only like the conservative expression of the church, the more traditional expression seems to have power and voice, and the more progressive and cutting edge expression of the church doesn't seem to be impacting the country and the world? Let me tell you why. It's because they actually give. In Dallas, Texas, there's a church of 3,200, smaller than us by half. Their budget is 15.6 million. In Chicago, a church about our size, they have a budget of 20 million. In Atlanta, a church a little larger than us has a budget of 23 million. And in Charlotte, in Charlotte, guys, in Charlotte, we're in LA, in Charlotte. I just want to say that a few more times. In Charlotte, there is a church of 6,000 that has a budget of $39.8 million. Now, here's the thing those people are generous and they're awesome. And we want to celebrate that. We do. But we got we to gotta believe that we can do better. Because Los Angeles is the most influential city in the world. Charlotte. Los Angeles is the most influential city in the world. And it's our responsibility to make sure that the church is here loving people, serving people. Because if you love Jesus and you love people, you really want them to meet. And that's what we're committed to. So when we look at our budget of 8.7 million, it pales in comparison. So I want you to see how easy this actually is if all of us do this together. If I I eliminated about, right, I just found out Mexico City just broke 1,500 people for the first time on a Sunday. It's amazing. But I'm not including them because we should be serving them as they serve Mexico. So I want us to keep investing in Mexico City. And I'm not including a lot of people who come who don't know Jesus yet because we don't expect you to give. We hope one day you'll receive what we're giving for you to have because Jesus is to be received freely. So I pared it down to the rest of us, 3,500 of us. If we gave $2,485 a year. Now, some of you are going, that's a lot of money. But that means if you're tithing, all you need is an income of $24,850. So if you make $25,000 a year, that's actually what your tithe would be. I imagine at least 10 of you make more than $25,000 a year. And if you gave $2,485 a year, that would break down to, because we love math, $207 a month. 
That means it would break down to giving $48 a week. So that means that if everyone in our community minimally gave $50 a week, we would surpass our budget without any extraordinary giving. I'm not even talking about a miracle. I'm just talking about faithfulness. So our budget should actually go so far beyond this if we all became faithful. So here's one thing that really occurred to me. See, I, I, I know how, like, the, the, the differential is. Do you know that oftentimes the richest people are not the most generous people? Sometimes people who are unexpected, they don't make a lot of money, but they're so generous because they give a disproportionate amount of their income. Now, I know some people who are extremely rich, who are incredibly generous. And by the way, they're rare. And have you ever been just mad going, I mean, if you make, I don't know, let's say 30,000 a year. Well, 3,000 a year is a tithe and it's, it's, it's a, a challenge a lot of times. But if you make 300,000 a year, you should give, well, then that's 30,000. If you make 3 million a year, your tithe would be 300,000. But if you make 30 million a year, you should give 15 million a year. You shouldn't even be talking about giving 10%. If you make 500 million a year, you should be giving away 300 million, 400 million a year. You don't need half a billion dollars. You really should be generous. But here's the thing. It's easier to judge someone with a lot of money when you don't have any money. And then to not actually judge yourself because you act like you don't have any money because you're not generous with what you have. So I'm going to believe something in this room. This is the room of the future billionaires. This is the room of the future millionaires. This is the room. You are. Some of you are going to accidentally create an app or create a technology or become an Instagram celebrity. And sell advertisements. I don't know how people are becoming rich. It's so bizarre to me now. But here's the thing. If you wait till you have money to be generous, you will never be generous. You'll just be one of those people with a lot of money who never gives. You have to decide now to set a value for generosity in your heart. So I want to challenge you tonight. Because you know what we actually do a lot of times on Sunday night? We go, well, Sunday night doesn't give. Sunday night, you know, they're, they're young and they don't have an income and they're not capable of giving or they're not quite there yet. And I want to stop expecting so little of you. Let me tell you what I want you to be. When I was a kid, I, I loved superheroes. And there's always like, they always had like the, 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 the legion of superheroes where they introduced all these new characters that you never saw again. They were like all the young superheroes. And I, I always loved the new ones because you, you are the unknown new superheroes of the world. You are the ones that God is preparing to change the course of human history. So, so I want you to do something. I want you to change your ethic. I want you to create a practice right now. I'm hoping that we get 100% of you deciding I'm going to become a reoccurring giver and I'm going to invest in the church. So there's two things we need from you. One, decide to be a giver. Not every once in a while, but every week. And then there's some of you, I don't know, you may have slipped in. And there's some of you who can actually give a significant gift tonight. And by the way, everyone can give a significant gift. I want you to just take a moment and pray and go, God, I want to give something. Because we're going to try to raise a million dollars to get ourselves going to next year. And we need everyone to give. 
I mean, sometimes one person can give a million dollars, but you know what's exciting? Is when all of us give something. So I'm just going to encourage you, don't miss this moment. Become a part of this. Step into it. Go on the app and make a sacrificial gift. And what we have here is we have these little envelopes. And what I want everyone to do, even if you give online or if you give through the app or if you give through, I don't know, electronically, I'd like everyone just to take one of these envelopes right now, just grab one. And I want you to, to fill it out, even if you've given it a different way. And if you gave through app, just write app on that. If you gave electronically, just, just write electronically. But I want you to write down what you decide to give. And every time I step into this, honey, come on up. We, we're, we're not just pretending, we're actually giving. And each time we end up giving more than we thought. I don't, I'm glad I'm not doing this six times. Do you think, honey, that we should give this much? Sure? Yeah. Okay. But with like all the zeros. Yeah? Okay. That will be our commitment. Okay? All right. Uh, it's more than I expected. Um, but you know what's really beautiful? One of the things that God's taught us is that generosity doesn't just change the world, it changes you. And Kim and I, we've been committed to you. We've been committed to Mosaic. We've been committed to the church. And we so believe that the future is going to be better than anything we've ever experienced in the past. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to say this, parents. You know, our kids came to us. I'm not going to say how much they're giving. But both of our kids have made such, all three of our kids, Jake is our kid too now, our, our, our whole family has made such a sacrificial decision in their giving that as parents, I'm just so proud because we're not asking you to do something we don't do. We're not asking you to do something that our kids haven't stepped up to do. So let's together give. Did you have time to write it down? All right, let's pass the buckets. You can just drop the envelope in there. Take a moment and do that. Honey, write total, total on that. Total. Okay. Let's do that. Let's just take a moment, just pass the buckets. I hope it's been a great night for you. I'm so excited about the future. And if you don't know, guys, Mosaic, we love you. We love doing life with you. We love doing life together, taking on great challenges and great opportunities. I I just believe that 100 years from now, people are going to identify Los Angeles as the epicenter of the movement of Jesus. And together, we're going to have a small part of that. I just hope historians a thousand years from now are writing, what was this mosaic that became the epicenter of humanity's best future? Because we're not giving for ourselves. Today we're giving for those who don't even know how much they're loved. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received, allow it to go deeply into your soul, to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. 
And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor in bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.